So, this morning, we are going to start in Genesis chapter 19, verse 27. Last time we covered this, the, what, what is so often called a Bible story. It's the account of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, in particular Sodom, as Lot was rescued out of so- Sodom. Uh, the two angels come, the townsmen attempt to get involved with these men in a, uh, probably a homose- certainly a homosexual way, and their purposes were vile. Uh, it was disgusting. Lot tries to protect them. His solution was also disgusting. Uh, he pleads with these men to don't act so e- with so much evil. Uh, he offers his daughters to them, and they are just absolutely determined, no, they're going to get in the house and get to these men. And so angels, these two angels that came to Lot, they strike the men blind. They get Lot and his wife out of town uh, and his daughters, and Lot makes a bargain with them. They say, go to the mountains, and Lot says, no, I'll go over here to this little town. Not very many people there. That should be okay. And so they, they agree to that. And as they're leaving, the angels have instructed them, don't look back. And it's very clear that it's going to be a massive destruction. But Lot's wife does not follow those instructions. She looks back and becomes a pillar of salt. Uh, The destruction is rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. He rained down fire and brimstone. It was a massive devastation for the whole valley and the other cities in the valley with the exception of Zor. And by the way, just to be clear, I don't know if I said it well last week, but in this destruction, it isn't just the cities and everything, but I mean, everything living, including plant life, was completely wiped out. And that is interesting if you think back to Lot went to this valley on purpose, right? Why did he choose to go to this valley? It was lush, it was green, it was prosperous. And so we take the most prosperous area and God renders it (coughs) destroyed and unproductive for the future. Uh, So that goes against what Lot thought he was getting when he went there. It also looks like as another motivation that Lot might have had, he kind of liked cities. (coughs) And so um, he went to those cities and those cities are no more. So with that said, let's read Genesis 19. Verses 27 through 38. Genesis 19, 27 through 38. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all of the plain, all the land of the plain. And he saw the smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that destroyed the cities where he had lived. <coughs> Lot and his two daughters left Zorah and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zor where they lived in a cave. <coughs> One day the older daughter said, Our father is old, and there is no man in the land to sleep with us, as is the custom over all the earth. Come, let us get our father drunk with wine, so we can sleep with him and preserve his life his wine. So that night they got their father drunk with wine, and the firstborn went in and slept with the father. He was not aware when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, 
Look, I slept with my father last night. Let us get him drunk with wine again tonight so you can go in and sleep with him and we can preserve our father's wine. So again, that night, they got their father drunk with wine and the younger daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware when she lay down or when she got up. Thus, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter gave birth to a son named and named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also gave birth to a son and she named him Ben Amin. He is the father of the Ammonites today. Alright, thank you. You know, last time I said if I could easily find a way to just ignore chapter 19 and go on, I would. It's, it's um, not, not a pleasant story in any means that you want to talk about with the exception of God sparing Lot. I mean, there's a story there, right? That, that is... is um, of some value in terms of uplifting or whatever you want to say, but the rest of this is just, it kind of reveals who we as mankind are when we're left on our own. Uh, but there's some good things to see here, nonetheless, or at least some, some things to learn. In, and then at the end, I, I'm going to give you a, a perspective that might catch us all a little bit off guard, but we're, we'll go down there and we'll get there. Verse 27, it sees, says that uh, Abra Abraham rose early in the morning. So all of these events, it looks to me like, transpired in one day. From the men coming to Abraham, Abraham bargaining with God about <clears throat> saving um, the cities if they could find at least 10 righteous people, which they can't. And it's pretty obvious by the time you get done with the story. All the way through the destruction of Sodom, Gomorrah, and Lot's leaving for Zor. Now we're into the next day. And Abraham got up early in the morning. He went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And so he's there kind of, okay, this is what God said. And as he looks in verse 28, down toward Sodom, which would include Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward the land of the valley. So this area that Lot went to, Abraham looked down that way and said the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. So when Abraham sees it from a distance, what do you think he's seeing? When you hear that description, smoke like that of a furnace, Lots of smoke, lots of fires. Anybody been around a steel mill at all? Steel mill, where they manufacture the steel? Uh, we went to a, a smaller, a community that had a smaller steel mill, uh, Middletown, Ohio, one time. Long story about why we were there, but we were there for a number of days. And they still had an operating steel mill at the time. I believe now it's been long shut down. But if you would look over there on occasion, I don't know what they were opening up, but every once in a while, as they would do some part of their process, they would open this big door and you'd see all the fire and smoke and everything that was going on with their furnace in order to heat, heat things up to make the steel. And when I see this, I realize from my other studying, getting ready for this a couple of weeks ago, that the historians place when this happened in the Bronze Age. And so they would have known what it was to have 
I don't know if I want to use the word industrial, but furnaces capable of heating up the elements to go in to make the bronze, um, the brass and the copper and so on. And so um, this was really quite the, quite the scene. So here's Abraham from some distance looking over and realizing the devastation has occurred. And I think it was probably a mammoth thing that he saw, massive fire, massive destruction through fire. So Abraham gets up early. He looks over. He sees it in verse 29. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow. What did Moses just say happened there? How would you put verse 29, at least that, the bulk of the verse, the first part, how would you put that in your own words? <coughs> what does it mean he remembered Abraham? Well, yeah, but of course his promise is if I find ten or more, I won't destroy them. I'm not trying to make this hard. Yeah, and, and I think remembered Abraham means I think even honored Abraham here. Hmm. Uh, he, he remembered Abraham and he knew that when Abraham was pleading, Abraham had a desire, a... a, a a connection with wishing the people that were righteous could be spared. And I think God also, while it wasn't stated in that encounter with Abraham and God, I think it's fairly clear Abraham's thinking about Lot down there was he's interacting with God on this, on this issue of finding some righteous people so that the cities would be spared. And so I, I do think this is telling us there in verse 29 that he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, throw, overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. In other words, here's the destruction and God sent Lot out. One of God's reasons for doing that was he honored Abraham and recognized Abraham's desire for Lot and any other righteous people that might be there, live there. So um, it's clear that when God's doing the destruction, the removal of Lot is connected with God's relationship with Abraham. Does that sound right? Okay. So, um, by the way, there's an interesting thing in verse 29 there. It says, and he sent Lot out in the midst of the over." over throw when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. That's plural. And when you think about Lot going down into the valley, why did he Lot go to the valley? Besides the fact that's the where he wanted to go, why did he have to decide where to go? Because there wasn't enough room for it. He and Abraham's crews were conflicting with each other because they were sharing space in which there was um, some uh, competition with regard to apparently water and flocks and space and everything and so Abraham said to him remember Abraham said you go where you want to go and I'll take what you don't take and so Lot had gone down there and when you think about that that was more than we saw Lot and his wife and his two daughters but that's not the end of Lot's holdings there he had servants 
He had goods. He had cattle. I mean, he went down there as a very successful, I'm guessing, prominent man, even though in the midst of that conflict, the people said, well, here he was a stranger not that long ago, and now he's here acting like a judge. But Lot was, Lot was a prominent man in the area in all probability. And so he had holdings, I'm sure, or people at least, placed in those cities. And we need to realize all of that went up. The only ones that God pulled out of there was Lot and his wife and two daughters. And his wife did not successfully get out. Okay, so let's move on to verse 30. So now we get kind of to the last chapter concerning Lot or the last segment concerning Lot in the Old Testament in terms of the story of what happened. In verse 30, Lot went up from Zor and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zor, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. So <clears throat> Lot had bargained, you could say, pled his case, begged for the chance to go to Zor, small town, instead of to the mountains. And they, they agree to that. And so Lot goes there. But in verse 30, which it looks like uh, very soon after, if not yet that second day, Lot went up from Zor to the mountains. Why did he go according to this verse? Fear. He was afraid. What was he afraid of? What? People think he's the cause of the problem next door. Well, he had, we, we don't, it doesn't say, but, you know, he, he may have had some concern about his relationship with the people around him. I mean, there was a conflict in Sodom before all this happened. There wasn't a whole lot of time for the rumor mill to do something with it because it's yet right immediately after that. As soon as he gets to Zor, the destruction comes. What else might he be afraid of? Um, now this is just my guesswork, but I can see some, some self-questioning going on the next day because of what he just witnessed. Think about, with the exception of Zor, this whole valley is totally destroyed with fire and the brimstone, which itself was a fuel. It would burn uh, once it got in the presence of the fire. So. This was something that you would not want to see, and yet it was earth-changing, and it was real close. And I can imagine the next day, seeing after having seen what really happened, um, saying, I stayed too close to the fire. And I don't know that that's what happened. We don't doesn't say what he was afraid of. And I don't want to make it so like we really are certain, but Lot has been through a lot. His wife has turned to a pillar of salt. He's seen God rain down the fire and brimstone. Uh, he barely got out. He went through the miracles of being protected by these two men when the whole town wanted to overrun his home. I mean, you could just keep going. It's been quite a period of time. And the steady constant presence in all of that is the power of God. Now, it took a while to see it in his home, but 
The angels took care of him, right? They took care of his family. He was told, get out now. Destruction's on its way. And then the destruction he saw probably more than equaled anything he could have possibly imagined. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been close enough to see that. And so here he is in Zor, and he went, I'm going to get some more distance. And it's interesting, what, where does he go? Right where they told him to go to begin with. He goes up into the mountains, and he stayed in the cave. It was him and his two daughters in this cave. Think about what's happened to Lot in a very short period of time. Yeah, what, how they connected. Well, worldly people don't always look at the events in the world with um, clear vision, right? We know that. But in reality, if, if the people of Zor could see the reality, they should have treated him like a king. It's only because he went to Zor that they were spared. Now, people of the world don't see things with that kind of clarity all the time, so we don't know what reception he got. We don't know what they really thought about him. But if they only knew, they would have said, Hey, would you please settle right here? We've got a good home for you. We want you in our presence. Um, because sitting next to you is safer than not. And so they were, they were spared because of Lot's presence there. You know, I think they're close enough to Sodom and Gomorrah, Zor is, that it, and they would have been destroyed. I'm, I'm, I'm of the thought that they were the same kind of people that were in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he ended up in a city just like he left. And that's a good point, too. And he just needed to get out of there. I, I need to get away from these kinds of people. That's an excellent point as well. Yep. So what was the cause of the fear at that moment? Not expressed. Lots of things that it could be, and all of them certainly would be in relationship to who God is and this destruction that just occurred. And then we get into continued ugliness in the family of Lot. I uh, don't know how else to talk about it. Verse 31 starts us into this account of what happened. Said the firstborn, this is the youngest daughter, eldest daughter, said to the youngest daughter, Father's old, there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Let's make him drink wine, lie with us, that we may preserve the family through our father. What's the problem that they're bringing up? Or the thing they want to solve? give their fathers an offspring, a son. Yeah, our culture is very different than this culture, but they're looking out, and I don't know what the fullness of their issues were or their concerns, but the one they voice here, the strongest, is the desire for heirs for Lot. And... I, I, when I look at this, 
So why do they have a concern that Lot won't have heirs? Well, that's true too. Might be left out of the inheritance after he dies. But what do they see as the problem about being able to have offspring? What's that? No men. They, they, they had, at least one of them had a fiance. It looks like both of them did. That's the word we would use, fiance. They called them, you know, it was betrothed. More, it's a stronger commitment than our engagement commitment in our culture but those men laughed it off when they were told you better get out of town so the men they thought were going to be their husbands were destroyed and now they're living up in the mountains in a cave the social life is a little limited and so they are there thinking our fate is to be here with our father, he's getting old, he'll die one of these days, and where will we be? And just to be in the mountains and expire there. And so they hatch this plan. And so the first, the, the older one is the instigator. And what's her solution? Get your father drunk. Yeah, get their father drunk. Now, it's amazing to me, and maybe it shouldn't be, and it's probably my own limited um, life experiences, but uh, they're off in a cave. They've escaped. They got wine to get drunk with. That just kind of took me a little bit. Like, of all the things that I'm going to pack off to a cave, that's not on the list, okay? And, and we don't know how much time went by. Maybe they grew grapes and made wine. I don't know. I think it's more likely this happened pretty quickly. Um, and so that occurs. And I, I do want to say something about the New American Standard. I'm going to pick on it a little bit, which is unusual for me. But in verse 33, it says, So they made their father drink wine that night. That's a pretty strong, like they forced it, made their father do it. If you go look at the the words that that's translated from, all it really means is they shared drink with him. I mean, it, it, it's the same word that they would have said for when Abraham offered wine to the visitors back in chapter 14. No, I'm sorry, 14, 1917. And so it, it, it's not as strong like they forced something. Um, so apparently Lot was not adverse. I mean, Lot's attendant didn't go up and go, what are you doing here? Apparently Lot was drinking wine and maybe to excess, we don't know. It was not something that was out of what he would be willing to participate in. And so the results are that uh, she, she does spend the night, the time with Lot and interact with him obviously in a sexual way. And my question would be, well, what's Lot's condition while this is going on? Oblivious. <laughs> Doesn't even know when she comes in and when she goes out. So they were very thorough in seeing that their father was inebriated. Um, this next part really kind of continues in my, it's probably my own limited life experience, but um, so the older goes to the younger, and what's she tell her? 
afterwards. It worked. Let's replay this scheme we've got in order to provide offspring for the family. And this to me is also equally amazing. I can't imagine, I, I have never been in this situation, but I'm guessing from what others have told me, Lot probably had a pretty miserable morning from being so inebriated that he didn't even know what was happening the night before very much at least, didn't know when she came in and when she went out. I don't know what else he may have been conscious of, but I would think the next evening when the younger daughter comes and says, here, have some wine, he would have said, are you crazy? I'm not doing this again, I'm still miserable. But nonetheless, they replay the scheme and it works again. And so the, what's the result of their scheme? What's that? Yeah, the results of their scheme is both of the young, I say young, both of the women become pregnant, and they both have children, and the older has a child named Moab, father of the Moabites. So now if you stop and think about social opportunities, they become a big, big group of people. They're, they're, they're a race, a nation. They're, they're a people group that occupy territory. And this, the fact that this is able to continue, that they have more offspring and this explodes in the nation uh, to be a big group of people, tells us there was a fallacy in the thinking of the daughters. What was the fallacy? There were no men. Today, today, yeah. but Where they come from? you know, if, if these young women, I, I keep saying young, I don't know why, I don't know their age, but if these women were thinking about what they had just seen and God's provision for Lot to get him out and get his daughters out, now they may have walked out of that situation in Sodom with a lot of guilt because we don't know what their lifestyle was, we don't know... We do know that they willingly embraced these this worldly cities um, and, and were a part of that. Uh, I don't mean necessarily the sin, and you'll know why I say that in a minute, but th they weren't wise to be there. There was foolishness there. They were evil people, and Lot didn't choose to separate himself from them. We don't know what kind of emotional issues, guilt, regrets they may have left and went to the mountain with and maybe they didn't expect God to do more but they had just seen how God had provided just because today I'm living in a cave doesn't mean that's my rest of my earthly existence um, we could go over and look at the book of Ruth and see what how Naomi moved out to a foreign country we're even going to talk about that a little bit but then when things go topsy-turvy move back to Israel and things move forward with God's blessing um, there were many opportunities potentially in the future for them to find husbands and to marry it's just like why do we have to solve the things today and it honestly uh, today are we not don't we want instant satisfaction and instant gratification and instant everything we want whatever problem we have to go away today yes ma'am 
Sure it is. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying we should have expected them to know it, but I'm just saying there was a huge fallacy in their, in their thinking here because obviously their people are going to interact with other people and marriages are going to occur and children are going to occur and all of these things that they were afraid wouldn't happen actually did happen. So um, it was a very limited, it was limited in the resources they considered. There's a lesson for us in that. When we get in that really difficult situation and we want to fix it now, we need to stop and realize that a lot of the solutions we might choose to pick are either foolish or sinful. And instead, we need to be looking to God for what, what, is, what do I need to do? And a lot of times, it's just wait, trust me. And that's really would have been a better choice for them. So let's go back to our text. The oldest one gave birth to a man, male, named him Moab, which that word means of his father. Um, and they became the Moabites. And the younger had a son named Ben-Ami, and that became the... Um, head person, the, the one that which out of him flowed the people called Ammonites and Ben-Ami means son of my people. So what are the consequences of what they did? Trick question as my transition to the next thing. Let's talk about the Moabites for a minute. The Moabites were a significant force and when Moses said, and they're the Moabites of today. They were coming close to contact with the Moabites in various ways, and you'll see that throughout the book of Numbers in particular. Um, and you also see it throughout the conquests, and you see it continuing throughout the Old Testament. And I'm not going to turn to very many of these, but um, in Numbers 22 through 24, those chapters... We get the story of Balak and Balaam. Do you know who Balaam is? What animal is associated with Balaam? His donkey. So Balak is the ruler, the key man, king maybe, I don't know if that's the right word, of the Moabites. He's the, he's the main one. And this is before the conquest of the land starts by the Israelite nation that God has brought out. We're, Remember, there's two groups of people. We bring one group, they come out, but they're unwilling to trust God to go into the promised land, so that group has to die off. And then you have the second group rise up, and when everybody's died off, then Joshua and Caleb lead this second group into the conquest of Canaan. And they're pretty successful. They make some really bad decisions in a few cases, and it costs them down the road. In Numbers 22 through 24, the king of Balak is looking out at this Israelite group of people, and they're a big group marching around. They've had some skirmishes and been successful, but they're not yet into the conquest of the Canaanite lands. But this king Balak is concerned, and so he contacts a person who you could put a few different labels on him, maybe a prophet, maybe a soothsayer, maybe a whatever. And he obviously is in the business for money, of bringing, of pronouncing blessings on people. And so Balak sends for Balaam and says, I want you to come up and bless my people. 
And Balaam says, okay. He takes a gift and he heads off on his donkey to go up and do that. And you remember what happens on the way? What happens is Balaam's on his way to see Balak. Well, it almost sounds like God himself stands in the way, but it was a mighty, mighty heavenly presence. The donkey could see, but Balaam can't. And the donkey is not willing to stay on the path. So the donkey gets off the path. I'm going to short circuit this and probably leave a few important details said incorrectly, but the donkey gets off the path. Balaam is upset with his donkey. And so he begins to thrash the donkey and beat the donkey and a number of other things, and he can't get the donkey to go. And finally, the donkey declares to Balaam, there was a warrior in the path and I wasn't going there. And Balaam said, you're lucky I haven't killed you yet, at which point God reveals himself to Balaam and says, you're lucky I haven't killed you yet. And so there's a discussion between Balaam and the, and, and the angel or the God figure that's there. And, and the, the, the conclusion is, yeah, you're going to go up to Balak and you're going to pronounce blessings. Uh, but you're going to pronounce the blessings I give you to pronounce, not the ones that you might have chosen to say otherwise. And so the, the, the story uh, concludes with, Look at Numbers 25. We'll read the first five verses. Numbers 25, 1 through 5. If I can get there. Hang on to that one. That's a different passage than one I wrote down. But we, we will read that. When Balaam gets there, he pronounces blessings not on the Moabites, but on the Israelites. Balak is a little bit more than unhappy. And some time goes by, and Balaam, Balak again wants another blessing. And so again, Balaam pronounces blessings on Israel. Balak says, hey, you, I keep coming up here to get you to bless my people, and you keep blessing them. And Balaam says, I can't say anything but what God tells me to say. So Balaam learned his lesson from the encounter on the path. Um, but so here's, here's a large group of people, Moabites, that exist, that are in the way that you would think would have been taken during the, taken during the conquest of Canaan. But look over at verse 25. I'm sorry, chapter 25. Let's read those first five verses. This is still prior to their conquest of Canaan. Who's got that for us? While Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to have sexual relations with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed and worshiped to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people 
execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that his burning anger may be turned away from Israel. So Moses told Israel's judges, kill each of the men who align themselves with Baal of Peor. And we could keep reading and find out this was a bloody encounter <coughs> as these sinful people in the land of, in the, in, amongst the Israelites were put to death. So here's what the Moabites did for the Israelites as they're approaching the promised land to take it at one point. And that is he, they introduced them to their gods, caught, brought them into adulterous sin, and even coerced them to worship Baal. And this worship of Baal continues to be a problem for Israel throughout their existence, doesn't it? When Elijah has the encounter with Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets, they were the prophets of Baal. So look at what comes out of the results of this sinful encounter between the oldest daughter and her father to propagate their family. We get the Moabites. Some other things, I, I, if you go just do a Google, not Google search, excuse me, a search in the scriptures through a you know, computer-based concordance and just go to Moab, I mean, you get all kinds of things you can look at. A few things is, um, at one point in the book of Judges, God raises up Moab. So Moab's still around, the people, to punish Israel, and they became slaves of Moab for 18 years. In the book of Ruth, Naomi... Goes, leave, she and her husband leave Israel and go to the land of Moab to survive a famine. There their sons take Moabite wives. And one of those wives is Ruth, who comes back to Israel with her mother-in-law and is in the very lineage of Jesus. Now that's interesting, isn't it? We've got a Moabite in the lineage of Jesus. In 1 Samuel 22... David, in his conflict with Saul, is looking for safety for his father and mother, and he sends them to be under the care of the king of Moab until the conflict with Saul can be revised. And uh, then you get into Solomon in 1 Kings. Um, go over to 1 Kings 11. Let's just read a few verses out of that. And then, then we'll talk about the Ammonites here in just a minute. 1 Kings 11, and we can just skip around a little bit rather than take the time to read the whole passage. We'll get the, we'll get the flavor of it very quickly. Um, I'm going to read for you verses 1, 7, and 33. In verse 1, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, and Hittite women. So Solomon, many wives... One of them was Moabite. If I go down to verse 7, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, for the Molech, and for Molech and the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. That's our Ammonites. We've got both the Moabites and the Ammonites mentioned here that Saul built monuments to their idols as a result of his choosing wise from those two tribes or two groups of people. 
verse 33. Um, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidians, and Chemosh, the god of Moab, and, Mil and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is my right in my sight, and observing my statutes and my ordinances, as his father David did, and he's going to pronounce his judgment on Solomon. So while we do have Ruth in the line of Jesus himself, when we look at this, the product, at least in terms of Moab, and we've already got a little bit of a hint from, from the verses we read about some Ammonite troubles, these descendants didn't do any good things with the exception of being in the lineage of Jesus for Ruth, and God wasn't dependent upon a Moabite to do that. That's just what he did. And all throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, um, they are constantly produce, pronouncing judgments against the Moabites because of how evil they are. I won't do a lot with the Ammonites, but in Deuteronomy 2.19, God tells them, don't harass the Ammonites. Now this is when still they're getting close to them, but they're not, they're not yet in their conquest of the land. Why? Because God had given the land that the Ammonites were on to the sons of Lot. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament, but it's given to them through Moses to say, don't harass them. They're in the place that God has appointed for them. And I find that very interesting for the Ammonites. Also, in Deuteronomy 22, um, they are given a prohibition. No Ammonites or Moabites are to enter the assembly of the Lord. So clearly, God's making it clear, yeah, they're descendants of Lot, if they're thinking about that, if the people are, but they're not part of the promise. And so, so that's a part of what happens. Let's go over to Judges chapter 10 and read verses 6 and 7. Judges 10... 6 and 7. So now we're into the time of the judges. It's after the conquest, but before the time of the kings. Judges 10, 6 and 7. Who's got that for us? The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, their encounters with the Moabites and the Ammonites didn't do them a whole lot of favors, did it? Created more troubles than it was really worth. I want to take just a couple of minutes and look at where else we see Sodom and Gomorrah mentioned in the scriptures. We don't see anything else in the Old... Well, that's not true. There are some references in the Old Testament, but few. But it's interesting. It shows up a couple of times in the New Testament. Let's start with Matthew 10, verses 14 and 15. Matthew 10... 14 and 15. Who 
Who's got those for us? And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So what's the context? Jesus is talking to who? The twelve. He's sending them out. And he says, by the way, if they reject you, shake the dust off your feet. And their situation is going to be more egregious in front of God in the day of judgment than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? But it really gets at the issue of rejecting Christ with with a certain amount of clarity. You were going to say something, Rick? Did I walk on you? Okay. Go over to Matthew, just turn a little bit over, Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago and sackcloth and ashes. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will be exalt. Will you be exalted to the heavens? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works had done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus was pretty clear, wasn't he? And it, it, it also shows something else that God brings into judgment, and that's a bit of context. I mean, what, what did Jesus just say to these cities? If Sodom had seen what you have seen, they would have repented. The miracle that the people in Sodom saw is they were struck blind. But if they had seen the miracles of Jesus, they would have said, oh no. I mean, that's what God says. They would have repented. Maybe not every man, woman, and child, but enough that they would have been spared and would still be in existence. Um, Luke 17, 28 through 30. We've got time to do that one too. Luke 17, 28 through 30. Um, 30 so we're we're, we're plenty um, and so <clears throat> Jesus is looking ahead to the time of, he kind of mixes some things together here some stuff in, in, if you put all the accounts together where he's talking about this he brings some things out about AD 70 when Jerusalem be destroyed he also though then clearly is talking here about the day that, that he is revealed 
um, which would be in his second coming. And, you know, he says it's going to be a destructive moment. And you, like the people of Sodom, were surprised. Uh, the people on earth at that time will also be surprised. Questions, comments so far? Okay, I want to take you to the one that makes you work your brain pretty hard. 1 Peter 2, 6 through 10. 1 Peter 2, 6 through 10. There are so many times when I read Peter, I get something that I didn't get elsewhere, and I don't mean that Peter um, is going off-center. I mean Peter brings some clarity to some things that I probably wouldn't have said it that way apart from reading it in Peter. So let's read Peter, 1 Peter 2, 6 through 10. What did I do wrong? Because that's not right. That's a great verse, and I preached on it not that long ago. Um, let me see if I can get us to the right one very quickly. Because um, Lot is mentioned. It's 2 Peter 2. Sorry. Thank you. Wrote it down wrong. 2 Peter 2, 6 through 10. There we go. Somebody read that for us. And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to ruin, making them an example to those who were going to be ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the unrestrained behavior of the immoral, for he, as he lived among them, that righteous man tormented himself day and night for the lawless deeds he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the right unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. Okay, so here is Peter talking about God's interaction with Sodom and some things about Lot and the example of their destruction to be a lesson to those that would live unrighteously. And he talks about Lot's rescue there in verse 7. And I'm sorry, maybe I'm, did I, is in verse 6? No. In verse 7, he begins to talk about Lot's rescue and how does he describe lot what's the adjective righteous righteous does that catch you off guard just a little bit so here is he rescued righteous lot what does he say about lot's existence there in sodom tormented. tormented oppressed it was oppressive as the new american standard said it what was what brought the torment and oppression to him? Yeah, the way these men were living and what he saw, what they their their interactions with him, um, said his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. What there is a little bit of evidence in the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that supports this. What's the little bit of evidence? Can you think back and see it? He didn't want Daniel to stay in the courtyard. He, he protected those. 
attempted to protect those visiting men, angels, by going out and saying, don't act wickedly toward them. So he knew what wickedness was. He didn't want it to happen. Now his solutions were kind of mixed up, was how I would say it. But um, so there's some evidence for that being a part of, it, it may have been torturous to, for him, it may have been difficult, but yet he stayed. So how can we call Lot righteous? Yeah, it is, I mean, the only way any person is righteous is through faith, right? So the thing that we do get to see a bit of is Lot didn't laugh at the guys when they said God's going to rain fire down out of heaven. I mean, he did say, okay, and uh, he made his agreement to go to Zor, but um, there's a certain amount of... God's the one that declares people righteous. And if he had decided to save Lot for one of his own, righteousness at times may have been in question based on Lot's behavior, but not in terms of the eyes of God. I don't have a great answer beyond that. Clearly, we all depend upon that answer. The only reason any of us is considered righteous is because God chose us, right? Go back to Ephesians 1. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world. And so it isn't that any of us lives an entirely righteous life or that we start righteous and stay righteous. Our righteousness comes from the declaration of God and his, typically it's God says, and their faith was reckoned as righteous. We have studied that back when we looked at what happened with Abram becoming Abraham. Along the way, God said, his faith caused God to declare him righteous. And that's what we see in Hebrews 11 and everywhere else in the scriptures. Um, I would not pick Lot of what I've read as a, let's hold him up as an example of what we ought to be like as righteous people, would you? And yet, this ought to give us a little bit of confidence on our worst days, frankly. Maybe confidence isn't the right word, but a hope that we too like Lot in our worst days still can have hope that God as he sees our faith as he bolsters our faith as he gives us our faith will then also see us as righteous it's interesting that, that if you go back a couple of verses in this chapter 19 where they're trying the angels finally say this morning get up get out Lot hesitates and, the, and mm-hmm. it's interesting that the phrase that you but he hesitated Yeah. So. And we read back in the passage that God remembered Abraham as he was saving Lot. Um, you know, I mean, if you look down through the whole chain, has God established a people for himself? Um, some of this we'll be studying, but Abraham didn't win gold stars every day. Matter of fact, next time he has another black star. Certainly Isaac didn't win gold stars every day. And certainly Jacob didn't win gold stars every day. And yet this is the lineage that God chooses to go down through to establish the people of Israel. 
Um, we're all sinners. We're all saved by grace through faith. None of ourselves, none of us can boast. We certainly wouldn't boast on Lot's behalf, would we? And yet, Peter says, God saved him. Let me close with prayer. Father, when we read your word, sometimes we see something that with our own human understanding we might not say, we might not expect to see. Lord, we thank you that you've included the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Lord, let it be a, a stark warning to us. Um, even as you continued to work with the land of Israel, you used many people to bring destruction to them as judgment to correct them, to bring them back into your fold. Uh, Lord, teach us to run from those things which would cause your judgment to head our way, would bring condemnation, would bring disappointment, would be offensive to you. Lord, let us run from them because um, we, we would rather run to you and to have the kind of relationship with you that brings joy and peace and comfort, as well as hope and confidence, not only for eternity, but also in this life. So, Lord, lead us through your word. Thank you for Jesus the Christ that came and paid the debt for our foolish, rebellious sin. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.